Looks like it filled up. That's good. Good morning. Good morning. How's everyone this morning? Great, wonderful, marvelous. So we're going to continue um, in Mark. You know, the scribes and the Pharisees were, were questioning Christ, and they're going to continue. And so we're going to continue to read the questions and the answers. From Mark 12, the 28th verses through the 37th. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Jesus answered, the foremost is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. The scribe said to him, right teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. May the Lord add a blessing to the reading and to the hearing of his holy word. Well, the novelty of meeting again is still fresh and sweet, and so it's so good to see you all again. Uh, Bo and Donna, I was thinking of you all this morning. And David, I was thinking about you yesterday. And so it's just, it's so good to look out on each face. And from the preacher's perspective, y'all are so much better than the glowing green dot in the middle of the screen. <laughs> so this is delightful. Um, before I begin this morning's message, though, I want to make a couple of comments about last week's sermon. Uh, our text last week was Mark 12, 13 through 27, in which we focused on Christ's word to render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And one of the things the scripture says that we owe Caesar is submission. And so 1 Peter 2.13 says, Submit yourselves to the Lord's sake to every human institution. And Paul wrote in first, uh, Romans 13 that every person is to be in subjection to governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. And therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And I stress this point hard because, one, sinners are naturally insubordinate, and Americans and Texans may be especially so. Uh, we are proud to be revolutionaries. We fly flags, daring people to come and take it. And so I talked about the necessity of showing our submission to God by submitting to the authorities that God places over us. And that begins in the home. And so as children honor their father and mother in the Lord, or they are learning how to submit to authorities outside of the home. But in saying that, I made a couple of incautious statements and a couple of other statements that I should have said but didn't. And so I made these two statements specifically. Uh, a child never gets to excuse their rebellion by saying mommy's a bad mommy or daddy's a bad daddy. And a, children, a child obeys its parents, and it doesn't matter if the parents abuse God's authority. And those were incautious because it matters immensely if a parent is abusive and if a parent is negligent. Uh, growing up in a good home, I honestly didn't think about the homes that some people had grown up in and what those words may have meant to some and the concerns it may have caused to others. And so, uh, and of course, the same should be said about abusive spouses or teachers or other things that we have the right to flee 
to fight, certainly to report. And so I want to, in light of uh, someone kindly brought that to my attention. So first of all, I want to apologize that to those who have experienced abuse or neglect, that I in a, uh, unintentionally hurt by making those statements. Uh, I was thinking of you also and the work that you do and the ministry you have. Um, I apologize. I didn't intend to be offensive. I just was inconsiderate, literally. I did not consider because of the protective home that I grew up in. I was thinking of normal bad moms or of children who don't like dad's rules and say you're a bad dad, but I did not mean to convey that abuse is ever acceptable, that negligence is ever permissible, or that it'll ever be tolerated in this church. So if you were hurt by that, I apologize for that. Now, secondly, I want to emphasize that people in dangerous and harmful situations do have a right to run, to resist, to report and you don't have to endure, and that is not honoring to God. Part of rendering to God what belongs to God is taking care of God's kids, men and women around us, and so we don't watch that quietly. Thirdly, now I wanted to assure the parents that we take your children's safety very importantly. Uh, the security guards are here primarily at the request of our children's director because she wanted to make sure that the kids were safe and to convey that. Uh, we've gone above and beyond trying to do everything that we can to screen and to filter everyone that has access to your children. But if someone heard, boy, John was so insistent on parental authority that somehow he might wink or look at uh, children that show signs of abuse or harm, that was not my intent, that is not our policy, and we will most certainly address any incident that we become aware of, as well as anything that we become suspicious of. And so, again, that was not a message I intended to convey, but apparently I did so unintentionally. Uh, fourthly, there's going to be many times that I'm going to say something wrong or not say something right. And when I do, come and let me know. Uh, I so appreciated the person coming to me, speaking to me face to face. I heard this. Did you mean this for me to say, oh my goodness, no, and to clarify it and to try to make it right. And so when I make a misstatement, I'll acknowledge it and I'll try to redress it. But I'm going to say enough words up here that I'm certainly going to say the wrong ones or something that didn't consider how they might have hit that person, that I was thinking of this person, not this person, and oh my goodness, now I've unintentionally hurt one of the family. So do let me know, especially if I ever, boy, that sounded erroneous, that sounded like this. And so that is not just your right, but your responsibility as part of the family to help me uh, speak truth only and to be considered of everybody as I can. And then finally, I would ask your prayers for everyone that stands up here. Uh, it's a heavy thing to handle the words of God. Uh, David will say, Dave does a lot of public speaking, but he says this is the hardest thing he does. Uh, Fred has a lot of responsibility, but he says this is the hardest thing he does. And Carrie and Alan and anybody who's had to stand up and say, thus saith the Lord, that's a scary thing. You know, the Bible says that uh, not many should become teachers because they will incur a stricter judgment. And there's times, especially in certain texts, that you know are going to be controversial or can't avoid hurting somebody, that it's hard. And so I would just ask your prayers. And again, at the end of the day, it is not our goal to please and appease everybody. It is our, God, our goal and our responsibility to teach God's truth accurately and clearly. And so there's time that that's probably going to displease most upset many, and that's okay, as long as God's Word was clearly and accurately taught. But that's a hard thing. It's a burdensome thing sometimes, and so please pray for all those who do handle the Word, because again, our conviction as a church is that only God's Word will be taught, and it will be taught completely, accurately, clearly, boldly, lovingly, but there's times we're going to miscommunicate or just get something wrong. And so when we do, come and talk to us. We'll look into it. We'll listen. We'll apologize, and if necessary, we'll address it. And so, again, thank you for your grace. And last week, thank you for bringing it to my attention. And I am sorry if that came across in any wrong way. Now, would you please pray with me? Father, we are indeed clay vessels that you have chosen to pour the beautiful truth of the gospel into. And it's hard knowing that however hard we try, 
knowing that we hurt people and say the wrong things, don't think of everyone and how it's going to receive them. And so would your spirit supernaturally guard and protect uh, every time your word is taught and it has the weight of thus saith the Lord, whether from the pulpit or on a Thursday teaching session or on a one-on-one counseling, we only want to convey your truth. And yet oftentimes we don't do that clearly or always accurately, but that is our desire. And we just confess to you our great need and dependence on your spirit to make sure that that happens and to bring it to our attention when it doesn't. So Father, would you guard my mouth and tongue even this morning? And again, would you please allow your word to be upheld as the thing we need most in this life to help us get right with you and right with one another and to navigate these tumultuous seas safely till you bring us home to harbor. So Lord, guard and protect us. Guard every little one that comes in that, that ministry. Let us be a great advocate of justice when the weak are harmed, when your children are abused or neglected. Use us, Lord, and grant us supernatural discernment because we are not wise enough to do it on our own. So we'll ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> well, as that is our intro, I do invite you to uh, turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 12, where we return to Jesus in the temple on the Tuesday before Passover. Uh, You'll recall that he is being confronted by various religious groups and political authorities in Israel, beginning with the scribes and the priests and the elders. And then they sent the Herodians and the Pharisees. And then the Sadducees thought they'd take a crack at it. And now we come to a final question who's not part of a group, it's just a single individual with a single, apparently genuine question that Jesus is going to communicate to remind us of what is most important in all these matters that have been under discussion and under debate. So in verse 28, one of the scribes, a legal scholar, came and heard them arguing. So he doesn't come with a group. He's not part of a band. He's a bystander. He's a witness. And watching the interaction between Jesus and the Sadducees, he knows that he answered him well. And so he asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? Now, according to Jewish traditions, there were 613 commandments in the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Law of Moses, 248 uh, imperatives of what to do, 365 prohibitions of what not to do, and scholars debated which were heavier or which were lighter, which were more significant or less important. And then were there some that seemed to be especially helpful in summarizing all of God's will for His people that could become a construct for understanding the others. And so the Pharisees placed a special emphasis on the Sabbath, that this was the mark of God's people, and that's why that was their recurring issue with Jesus and disciples. You don't honor the Sabbath, at least the way that he, their, their uh, tradition said to. Uh, others thought that honoring your father and mother, and again, they observed that this was the first commandment with a promise, that they would be able to linger long in the land if they did this command, because of all the ramifications that teaching obedience has to honoring God and other authorities. Others would quote Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your Lord. So these three things. There was a famous interaction between a Rabbi Shammai and a Rabbi Hillel. And Rabbi Shammai asked, Teach me the whole Torah while I stand on one leg. In other words, do it quick because my balance isn't going to last long. And Rabbi Hillel said, Do not do to your neighbor what is hateful to you. This is the whole Torah. The rest is commentary. And this is the so-called silver rule because it's not as valuable as the golden rule that don't just simply not do what you don't want done to you, but do what you do want done to you. But all of these were being debated at the time of what is the essence of the law. And Jesus goes to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 6, with a passage that every Jew knew well. The foremost is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. 
And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Now Jesus could have begun in verse 5 with just the command, which is what Matthew records him doing. But he begins with the preface, the confession of faith that every Jew would have known. This passage is so famous, it has a name. It's called the Shema from the transliteration of the Hebrew of the first word here. And when your child first began to speak, this is what every good Jew would have taught their child first. So after Dada and Mama, all right, well, you're old enough to learn the, sh the uh, Shema. And you taught them this. And for the rest of their life, every pious Jew repeated this twice a day because this was the foundation of who they were and their covenant relationship with their God. Israel was Abraham's grandson, originally named Jacob, but God renamed him after he wrestled with the angel of the Lord before returning into the promised land. And Israel's 12 sons, the sons of Israel, God now names his nation after them in Exodus 4 and just says, Israel is my son. And so to even say the word Israel is first of all to be reminded that you are part of the patriarchal line. You're part of those that God gave his promises to Abram, to Isaac, to Jacob, and Israel. You are the recipients of those gracious promises of God. That you're part of the sons of Israel that God called Israel when he redeemed you out of Exodus. That you are a redeemed people. Delivered out of bondage by the mighty right hand of God. And thirdly, that you were the ones that God brought to Sinai and he entered into a covenant with you. You were God's covenant people. So even to say that name of address reminds you of the promises you received, of the redemption you enjoyed, of the covenant that you've entered into. You're God's people. And likewise, when you says the Lord is our God, it's not talking about loving some generic God that we choose to invent or insert into. No, no, this is... Yahweh. This is the <clears throat> memorial name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush, that this is my sacred name. This is my memorial name. You've heard other names and labels given to a divine figure. Mine is Yahweh. I am that I am. I am the everlasting, the eternal, self-existent God. When you say the name Yahweh, our God, we're talking about a very specific person, not some vague higher power. This is the creator of the heavens and the earth. This is the one who made Adam and Eve in his image. This is the one who, when he evicted them out of Eden, when they violated his law, immediately set on a plan of redemption to restore his people. This is the one who flooded the earth but spared Noah. This is the one who scattered the nations at Babel but summoned Abram. This is the promise giver. This is the redeemer at the Exodus. This is the lawgiver at Sinai. That's the God we're talking about. Not just any other God, because there is no other God, which is what the rest of the statement means. The Lord our God is one Lord, means Yahweh, our God, is the only God. There's only one God out there. Isaiah says in chapter 45, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. There is no one besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Thus says the Lord who created the heavens. <clears throat> he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a wasted place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. <clears throat> there's only one God. And He is the God who not only made the heavens and earth, but made it to be inhabited. This is the only place in the known universe that has an atmosphere so that we can breathe air, that has liquid water that can sustain life. The only place that has life. This is the righteous God. He has a particular character of holiness and graciousness and mercy and compassion and love. This is the one who's going to judge those who don't come to know him in a saving way. But this is the God who says, come to me, all the ends of the earth, not just Israel, not just the Jews, anyone around the globe, because there's no other savior. There's no other mediator. There's no other one that can make us right before a righteous God other than the Holy Son that he sent. So this basic profession of faith, reminding them of their identity, 
as God's promised people, God's covenant people, God's redeemed people, who are the people of Yahweh, the only true God. In light of that, here's the implication, here's the application, which is why the next verse begins with and. Believing that, knowing that, hearing that, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. So there's a what, a who, and a how contained in this. The what is to love. To not just confess, not just believe in, not just begrudgingly obey so that you can get a goodie or avoid a punishment. To feel adoration and affection for. To treasure and to value. To prioritize and to esteem. And therefore to faithfully fulfill the covenant that you've entered into. Um, We've had several anniversaries of late. And no spouse on an anniversary wants to hear their husband or wife look across the table and say, you are one of the things that I am responsible for. You are one of the duties that I am committed to fulfilling. You are among the things that I love. The rest of the evening is ruined because that is not what a marriage is intended to be. And when God entered into a marriage with His covenant people Israel, which is what Sinai was, a wedding ceremony, we were to respond wholeheartedly with our affections. We're so zealous and passionate about sports and games and activities and hobbies when the thing that we were given affections most of all to express is a love and adoration of the most loving and lovely being in all the universe, which is our God, our Creator and our Lord and our Redeemer. So we are called to love Him. And the who that helps us do that is the Lord, our God. So to even say, love the Lord, to love Yahweh, reminds us of there is no one so lovely as Him. There is no one as gracious, as compassionate, as loving, as kind, as long-suffering, as tender, as caring as God is, who even right now is letting His Son fall not just on the righteous, but the unrighteous as well. Who loves not merely His children, but His enemies. Who while we were yet sinners, demonstrated His love by sending His Son to die for us on a cross. There's no God like that. Everyone else that you're attracted to because of some faint echo of the love of God that they reflect, this is the source. This is the origin. This is the one from whom every drop of love that you ever experience or express comes from. And this perfectly lovely being is worthy of our love. And there's none so loving as God. Uh, We had our first men's gathering in three months yesterday, and I think it was, uh, I forget who said it, maybe Daryl, that we need to talk out loud in front of our children and our grandchildren of all the good things that God has done for us. Our family should always hear us bragging on God, of God was so kind to, the Lord was so merciful to, hasn't God been gracious to allow And we should always be speaking and reminding ourselves that He is the one from whom all blessings flow. So that all creatures below will praise Him. Because there's none so loving as God who right now is loaning us breath, loaning us our heartbeat, giving us every good thing that we've enjoyed today is a gift from God who owed us nothing. And even when we ignore Him and even when we rebel against Him and even when we shake our fist at Him, He continues to pour out His love and is continually patient with us and sent His Son to die for us so that we could live with Him forever. That's the God that we're called to love. That's an easy assignment. (laughs) I heard a pastor talk once. He was talking to a pastor about a husband who was struggling to love his wife. And he said, you know, I have to tell some husbands to love their wife even though she's a harpy. You know, you've got a great wife. This, This should be an easy person to love. God should be easy to love because He's so lovely and so loving. It explains the how of what we love with every aspect of our being and every ounce of our energy. Because to say our heart, our soul, our mind means all of our being, the entirety, that there's nothing from Him that we withhold from Him, that all of us responds to God in an affectionate, appreciative, adoring way. And with all of our strength, that not a mite do we withhold from Him because God is worthy of all our passion, all of our zeal, all of our devotion. So what does this look like practically? 
Let me just give you five, because sometimes to say go love the Lord with all your being sounds vague, sounds difficult to apply, but here's at least five things that I think that that involves. First of all, we spend time with the ones that we love. Now, when I fell in love with Nock, I could not stay away from her. Uh, if you've ever been to UT Austin, you know UGL, the ugly library, um, there in front of the Sprinter with the torch. And we would post notes for each other on the bulletin board that we could read in between classes. You know, we would walk across campus because I was a liberal arts student. She was a biology student. We were in different sections of campus. But we would make the journey to meet briefly to see each other for a little bit because we couldn't stay away from each other. Um, conversations went long and lengthy. You know, being apart, we would drive distances just to get a few moments together. Some people can't even drive two bicycles. They have to drive tandem bikes because they want to be close. And we're around the ones that we love. You know, when you're new parents and you're so ready for a date night and you go out and what do you talk about? The kids. <laughs> because they're the center of your world. And so we spend time with the one that we love and we should spend time with God. We read his word. We talk to him in prayer. We meditate on who he is, the fact that he's with us. We spend time with God because we love him and this helps us grow in our love for God. We praise God for who he is. As we were reminded of who our God is, we worship him. We honor him. We glorify him. Um, my daughter recorded, she was outside uh, studying on a park bench and she recorded this bird that was singing its heart out. I mean, this thing had something to sing about. I don't know if the nest were just filled or if the worms were especially abundant that morning. But it's this crazy recording of the celebrating bird. It's like, God did that. God made that little bird to sing its lungs out like that. And it's just, it brightens me just to hear it. But if I'm grateful for the bird, I should be grateful for the God that made it. Everything that we enjoy, from a cool June morning to, uh, I heard someone talking about how good their Dairy Queen Blizzard was the other night on a date. And all those things are right and proper to enjoy, but they should remind us of the one who invented all those things. And so we love him and we thank him and we praise him. We thank God for all the good gifts that he does for us. Because everything is a gift. Everything is grace. Everything is mercy. We're just blind to it because we've grown accustomed to it. So we need to remind ourselves that nothing can be taken for granted. Again, to quote G.K. Chesterton, if I can thank my parents for putting gifts in my stockings, can I not thank God for putting legs in my stockings? You know, how, how about these things? <laughs> it's all gift. It's all grace. Uh, I was thinking, it's so discouraging to look at the news these days, and every scene is another scene of hate and violence and fear and alarm. And what helps me sometimes is to think, but right now, there is perfect love and harmony between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. At the center of the universe is perfect peace and love and the way that things are intended to be. And that's been going on forever. And it's going on right now. And it's going to endure forever. And love wins. All of this stuff is the anomaly. All the hate and the violence and the injustice, this is the aberration. But right now, there's someone who isn't engaged in this. Right now, perfect love and peace are present. And that is going to be our future someday. And that helps me. I mean, that honestly walks me off the cliff sometimes to think, but the Father and the Son and the Spirit are loving themselves perfectly right now. And one day they're going to make a new heavens and a new earth, and it's going to be like that again. And that, that, that's helpful to me personally. So praise God for that. We should love what God loves. Um, <laughs> we don't always share our spouse's hobbies, <laughs> but the fact that it's their hobbies, we should show an interest in it and support it because they're our spouse and we love them. Likewise, our children. They sometimes want us to do things and we really don't want to play Candyland again. <laughs> we really don't want shoots and ladders again. We really don't want to do this again, but we do it. Why? Because that's our kid. And we love them, so we love the things that they love. And so we love God by loving what God loves, like holiness, like his church, like truth, like people. Whether or not we love people, God loves people. And I love people, as we're going to see, because God does.
and I should value what he values because he's most valuable. And finally, love is explicitly and repeatedly and unavoidably connected to obedience. Obedience is God's love language. Let me just give you a few of the verses. We could have multiplied them. John says, or Jesus says in John, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. Obeying God isn't a burdensome, onerous thing. It's the right way to live. It's the perfect life that God intends for us. And giving up on the temporary pleasures of a particular sin are well worth the long, lifelong, eternally long fulfillment that comes from living in line with God's plan for us. Obedience is a good thing. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments aren't burdensome. Use the tool the right way. It works better. <laughs> this is love that we walk according to His commandments. So to love God, we obey God, and then we find out that God is a good God, that His rules are right and just, and then we love Him more, and that makes us better able to love Him. It's a cycle. But Jesus not only affirms a familiar statement, He has the audacity, unless He's God, to add to it, which is what he goes on to do. The second great commandment or foremost commandment is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment, singular, greater than these, plural. Now, was Jesus not good at grammar? You know, he just didn't have the grammar girl <laughs> to go to double check himself. No, the point is, is that loving God and loving our neighbor are inseparable. We cannot love God and not love our neighbor. We have to show our love for God by showing our love for neighbor. We don't get one without the other. We can't love God and hate people. It doesn't work that way. Now, when this command was first given in Leviticus 19.18, a neighbor was your fellow Jew, was your, favorite, uh, your fellow Israelite. But by this time, under Roman oppression, Jesus has expanded the definition, which was the point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. Anyone close enough to you to help is your neighbor in that moment. It does not matter who they are. It does not matter what their religion is, what their race is, what their age is, what their need is. If you are close enough to help them, it is your obligation to help them. Even when it's inconvenient, even when it's unpopular, even when sometimes it can be unsafe. Because that person is my neighbor in that moment. Close enough to me to help. I can reach out and do something for that person. So how do we do that? How can you command love? Well, the Puritans help us here by distinguishing what they called a love of complacency and a love of benevolence. And complacency comes from a Latin compound word that means with pleasure. So some people, it's a pleasure to love. Some people are lovely. Some people love you back. Some people loved you first. And it's easy to love the lovely and the lovely. Harder to say, but easier to do, right? Because when someone is lovely and attractive and when they love you and they love you back, well, it's fairly easy to love that person. But that's not how all people are. Even sometimes family, friends, and relatives, we don't like them, but we still love them. And that's because of what is called a love of benevolence from the compound Latin word meaning goodwill. So we will them well and we do them well even if we don't like them because we don't always like the people that we still have to love. That's one of the great secrets of marriage is the power of infatuation that led you to marry and to say the vows and then you walk down the altar and the wedding becomes a marriage and you realize this person's not as likable as I thought they were. <laughs> this person isn't as lovely as I thought they were. They're no longer appreciating my loveliness the way that they said they did, right? But we still have to love them. And we love out of our will when we don't love out of our like. And that's okay. Because not everybody is likable. Not everybody is lovable. We're not always likable and lovely. But you love them anyway. We are committed to willing them well, only wanting what is good for them, and doing them well. 
only doing what is good for them. So what does this look like? Here's a few ways in which we can love our neighbors as ourselves. First of all, remember you were commanded to be benevolent, to wish everyone well, and to do everyone well. Do the good you can to everyone you can and only want what's good for them. Because we probably all have certain people in our life that don't wish us well. And what do I do in return? I love my enemy by only wanting what is good for them and only doing what is good for them, even if they are wishing and doing me harm. We're benevolent with all. It doesn't matter who they are. Secondly, Jesus gave us the golden rule, not the silver rule, but the golden rule of in everything, treat people the same way you want to be treated. You like to be treated with respect, treat others with respect. You don't like other people to make bad assumptions about you, assume the best of others. You don't want people to make snap judgments about you, you don't make snap judgments about them. You don't appreciate having words taken out of context, you take theirs in context. And Jesus has given us a very basic guideline to use our selfishness for selfish purposes. <laughs> you know how you want to be treated. Treat others the same way. If you don't appreciate being treated a particular way, don't treat other people that way. Thirdly, subscribe to Scripture's description of love. Don't insist on our own fleshly definitions of love. And Scripture's very clear on this from 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient which means when I'm impatient, I'm being unloving and I'm not permitted to do that as a Christian. Love is kind, which means when I'm harsh, I'm not being loving and I don't get to do that. Love isn't jealous. Love isn't boastful. Love isn't proud. It doesn't act unbecomingly. It isn't self-serving. It isn't provoked, even when people are provocative. It doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. We don't keep lists and ledgers. It doesn't rejoice in unrighteousness. We're not glad when bad things happen to other people, but it rejoices with the truth. And here are some sermon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon preached a beautiful sermon on love's labors. And he says, as soon as we're born again, we begin to want to love because that's why God gave us a new heart and made us a new creation of Christ. And immediately we find ourselves assailed on four fronts all around us. The enemies arise. And this is love's fourfold labors. We must bear what? All things. What if that person's unbearable? There's no such thing biblically. You bear all things. You believe, and again, that doesn't mean letting someone abuse you, mistreat you. You know the sense of this, of... We put up with people even when they're not easy to put up with. We're willing to just keep taking it. We hope all things. God can redeem any, any person in any moment. And so I keep hoping that while there's life, there's hope. And so I'm not going to give up on a person. I never write another human being off. I was talking to one particular man. And he was talking about what a bad sister his wife had. I said, when's enough enough? And when can we just write her off? I said, you never get to write her off. One, she's a human being. Two, she's a sister. You always hope that they might receive the gospel and be transformed. We believe all things and we endure all things. We continue to put up with people's rudeness and unkindness and bragging and self-seeking. When everyone is the opposite of that love, I'm still just going to take it. I'm going to bear with it. I'm not going to give up on you because God didn't give up on me and God loves me. So how do we do this when it's so hard and difficult and otherworldly? Let me give you just five motivations that biblically help us. First, God commands us to. For me to refuse to love another person is to defy God. And again, there are multiple definitions and specific scriptures on this. I have to love. Secondly, God made them in His image. However angry and ugly that person is, they are made in the image of God and there is something valuable and honorable and worthy of loving in them. No person is completely unlovely because God made them in His image. And so I love the bit of God that's there. C.S. Lewis said, outside of the holy sacrament, your neighbor is the most holy object to your sense. 
And I would argue that the neighbor is holier than the sacrament because it's not made in God's image. So everyone is in the image of God. We love them for that reason. Thirdly, God loves them. That person that you don't like, God loves them. He loved them so much that he sent his son to die for them. And so I can try harder by God's grace to love them. Fourthly, God loves me even when I'm unlovely. Most days, uh, I'm... No, no, that's wrong. Every day, (laughs) I'm unappreciative of God. I'm ungrateful. Uh, I don't obey Him as I ought. I don't love Him as I ought. And God is so patient with me. God is so forgiving with me. God puts up with so much from me. He just keeps loving. And so I can love others when they don't reciprocate or respond or acknowledge because that's how God loves me. And finally, God is love and He created us to love and He saved us to love and He put His Holy Spirit within us to love. So what has, been God, or what has God been doing for all eternity? Loving. Why did He make Adam and Eve? So that we could love Him and one another. Well, when we rebelled against Him and quit loving Him and each other, what did God do? Well, he set out on a plan of redemption that involved giving us a new heart so that we would love God and others. Love isn't some kind of extracurricular activity for human beings. It's the reason that I was made was to love God and others. It's the reason that I was redeemed is to love God and others. What will it be like in heaven? You'll love God and others. This is essential to who we are. And the scribe recognizes the good teaching and says, right, teacher, You have truly stated that God is one. He's the only God. There's no one else beside Him. And to love Him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices, any superficial form of worship or religiosity. And when Jesus saw that He had answered intelligently, He said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask Him any more questions. Now He said... You're not far from, but he wasn't in. Because knowing the truth about Bible and knowing the truth about what God wants from us and even trying to do that isn't enough. To enter the kingdom of God, we have to acknowledge that we don't do those things, that we're sinners. We have to repent of our rebellion against God and we have to place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. That's what brings us into the kingdom. And why should we do something that's so difficult and hard as try to obey these great commandments? Because Jesus is Lord and has the authority to require this of us. Look in verses 35 through 37. Jesus began to say as He taught in the temple, and He did this every day, Mark 14 says, How is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of David? So the scribes, those who knew the Hebrew Scriptures, knew that the Messiah was a descendant of David because in 2 Samuel 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God entered into the covenant with David, he said that one of his descendants would sit on a throne and rule righteously forever. And so we see these hints in the Old Testament of uh, the Messiah being called the branch or the root or even the new David. And so they knew that Messiah was going to come from the line of David. What they didn't know, though, was the Messiah's relationship to God. So Jesus quotes Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. So in Psalm 110, a psalm of David, David says to Yahweh, the Lord, about his Lord, but David was king. Who was his Lord? And how could this descendant be the Lord of David? Because, in fact, he was the Lord. Jesus was, in fact, God. Which bookends now the way this whole conversation began three weeks ago. Jesus came into the temple, and do you remember the questions that was asked by the scribes and the elders and the chief priests? By what authority are you doing this? Who gave you this authority? Jesus answers, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Lord. And therefore, we should repent and believe in Him. And therefore, we should obey the two foremost commandments that He's given us. I want to read you a description from uh, a new biblical theology of unity called One. 
the passion and prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine a church where God's glory is displayed in His children's love for one another. Amazed by the Father's grace, they love without demanding acknowledgement or repayment. Humbled by the Son's humility, they regard others more important than themselves and selflessly act on their behalf. Filled by the Spirit, they are patient and kind, not jealous or arrogant. They do not brag, act unbecomingly, or seek their own, nor are they provoked or keep an account of wrongs suffered. They rejoice in the truth, not unrighteousness, and they bear, believe, hope, and endure all things. Knowing God's love, the Christians in this community are compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, patiently. They bear with one another, forgive each other just as the Lord forgives us for the peace of Christ rules in their hearts. There's transparency and trust for no one entertains suspicions, harbors bitterness, or feeds grudges. There is encouragement and affirmation for everyone speaks the truth in love and pursues the things that lead to peace. Wrongs are quickly repented of and forgiven. Those who stray are compassionately pursued and then graciously restored. The community realizes that they are dependent on each other and everyone uses their spiritual gift to serve their brothers and sisters in Christ. And everyone, whatever their gift, is appreciated and acknowledged and affirmed accordingly. When needs arise, people donate and assist. When tragedies occur, they gather and weep and console. When blessings happen, they are shared and celebrated by the family. This church is a home for the lonely, a haven for the harried, a school for the uneducated, a hospital for the spiritually ill, a warm shelter from the cold, harsh, wicked world. Yet the church isn't an isolated fortress or an elitist society, but a beacon intended to be a blessing to the community. Members invite their neighbors and co-workers who are impressed and attracted by the open and authentic relationships that they witness. Visitors are genuinely welcomed, whoever they are, and are amazed to see such a diverse community respect and serve everyone alike. Younger members respect their elders' wisdom and experience, and the seniors value the younger generation's energy and creativity. The rich help the poor without patronizing them, and the poor engage the wealthy without envy or greed or ulterior motives. The strong uphold the weak. The powerful protect the vulnerable. Men and women respect each other and their differences. The church isn't colorblind, for God made the races distinct. But everyone sees and appreciates each other's ethnic heritages and appreciates their equality as God's image bearers and Christ's redeemed. The church reaches out into their neighborhood in practical, helpful ways. They support other churches in the community, endorsing and praying for them publicly. They pray for their brothers and sisters around the world, contributing funds and sending people to extend Christ's kingdom. And in everything, God is glorified, Christ exalted, and the Holy Spirit relied upon. Everywhere the gospel is preached, the Bible is taught, and the Lord is loved, feared, and obeyed. What a church this would be. What an impact it could make. What a compelling witness to Christ and the gospel. So let's stop being so self-absorbed, caught up in our petty preferences and grievances. Let us repent, labor, and pray to become the loving Christians and churches God intends us to be. Let us love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and let us love our neighbor as ourselves. For these are the two great commandments. Now on that note, I want to end by making a couple of announcements that we hope to be an expression of this. Uh, beginning July 9th, for the four last Thursdays in July, rather than having a teaching time in here, we're going to have a fellowship outside for us to enjoy one another and to invite other people in the neighborhood to come and join us. And whatever activity social distancing allows, basketball, cornhole, volleyball, dominoes, puzzles, chit-chatting, what we want to do is to come and to gather and to enjoy one another and to invite other people to come be a part of that and to let them drive by and to walk by and to see the lights and to hear the laughter and to want to come to the campfire. Uh, you know, uh, the Christmas carol with Ebenezer Scrooge and his nephew invites him to come to Christmas. 
and he wants them to be a part of it, but Scrooge is just going to end an icy cold time in his uh, home, counting his money, nursing his grievances. But when the ghost of Christmas present comes and he looks in the window and hears the laughter and sees the warmth, he wants to come in. And that's what we want to be for our community, is a loving family that others want to join. And if we open our arms wide and say, come and join us. And so that's what we're going to do as an expression of our outreach on Thursdays in July as a way of becoming better known to our community and having something to invite them into. And then on August 2nd, we can ask them to join us for our 11 o'clock service. Because after almost two years of meeting at 8 o'clock and 8.30, I almost said the ungodly hour because some view it that way, but <laughs> we are going to be transitioning to an 11 o'clock service. And that is going to be a great blessing to certain people in our family that haven't been able to join us because of health issues that makes it very difficult for them to rise early. And now they can come be a part of the service. For those in the community that 8, 8.30 on a Sunday is just unthinkable, but 11 o'clock isn't. And so on August 2nd, we are going to be shifting to 11 o'clock. And we want to again begin inviting our neighbors to come join us and to welcome them. And whoever walks through those doors, whatever color, whatever background, however many tattoos and piercings, whatever they smell like, look like, act like, we will love them because they're our neighbors. And God tells us that we love Him by loving them. And we'll invite our neighbors to become our brothers and sisters in Christ, which is what we're here to do, to join the family, to be a part of this thing called church. I saw, I was listening to a Christian artist named Sarah Groves that my family likes. I see some appreciative nods. Um, and I hadn't seen this particular album. It's called Add to the Beauty. Isn't that a great album title? Add to the beauty, contribute to the glory. And we need to add to the love. That we're going to do our part to love God, to love others, to be always growing in that because we want to be the most loving place in town because we serve the most loving God in all the universe. Let's love God, love others, and invite people to join us. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we do thank you again for being so uncomfortably clear. <laughs> the reality is uh, we get comfortable in our own little lives, in our own homes, in our own schedules. But that's not why we're here, is to simply gratify ourselves and to remove everyone else that we view as inconvenient. You were perfectly content to exist as the Trinity, and yet you made the universe to create people that you knew would rebel against you. But you did it anyway. And then you sent your Son to allow us to be restored to you and reconciled to you to one day spend eternity with you. Would we who have been so well loved, love others well? Forgive us for where we fail, grant us grace to do better, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen.